Hi everyone and welcome back to a new episode of Liminal Space, the first episode for 2021. Um, big pleasure today to be in discussion with Bruce Parry. Bruce is an English documentary filmmaker, Indigenous rights advocate, author, explorer and former Royal Marines Commando Officer. He's probably most well known for his multiple BBC documentary series, Tribe, Amazon and Arctic, where he lived with and learnt from remote Indigenous communities often in extreme environments and highlighting important environmental and other issues faced by these tribes. Bruce's latest film project is a feature-length documentary called Tawai, A Voice from the Forest, focusing on the Penan of Borneo, one of the last remaining nomadic indigenous people on the planet. This film explores the different ways that humans relate to the natural world and how this influences the way in which we create societies. Bruce also has a deep interest in plant medicines, psychedelics, consciousness, and meditation, exploring different ways in which the lessons learned from his experiences can be integrated into his own life. So it's a huge pleasure to welcome Bruce Parry to Illuminal Space. Hi, Bruce. David, hello, mate. How's it going? Good, man. Good. How did I go with the intro? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah nicely, nicely, uh, <laughs> nicely worded. You've uh, so done we're so on the side of the world. Where are you exactly? I'm in Melbourne, Australia. You're in Melbourne. Yeah, beautiful. And where are you exactly? I'm in Wales, UK. Okay. Slightly nice. different weather systems, I guess. Yeah, well, different time zones, weather systems. Very and, different uh, time zones, yeah. I thought I'd, well, I've, I've, it's been a really great couple of days um, learning more about your work. I've watched um, Tawai and I've watched the other related um, kind of mini documentaries, I guess, associated with, uh, with that. And um, yeah, learnt a lot and really excited to see where this conversation goes. It was not easy to come up with an opening question, but what I thought was to quote um, a sentence from, from Tawai, which is the easy part. And then I'll ask you the question, which is the more <laughs> difficult part. Sure, sure. The Penan have a word that describes their feelings for the forest. It's a word that doesn't easily translate a relationship that is hard to describe. They call it Tawai. So my unfair question to you is, can you do your best to try to, to, try to describe Tawai? <laughs> yeah, that's a good opening question, mate. Um, well, the main reason we chose it is because it's actually very hard to translate. It's almost like we don't have uh, a, a direct translation for it. I mean, some cultures do. Um, or at least have something closer to it. But in England or in the English language, which we both share, there's, uh, there's not much that comes close. But there's, there's three occasions it's used in the film and, and they all use Tawai quite differently. There's one time when he says um, that he's feeling this sort of nostalgia, this memory, this sort of like this uh, feeling of loss of his relationship with the forest. So where he goes, I'm feeling this Tawai for the time gone by and for all these feelings we used to have. So I kind of translate that as a slight nostalgia. And then there's another occasion where he, he says there's no Tawai in the destroyed forest, in the forest that the, that the sort of outsiders have come and taken down. So uh, it's like, uh, in that sense, I feel that it's like uh, um, Tawai is relating to a natural state, a state that hasn't been too disrupted by humankind, or at least disrupted by our type of human activity. And then there's another occasion he uses it, and to be honest, that's slightly slipped my mind so long since I sort of watched the film, but like 
So uh, essentially, I think what it is, is like, oh, no, that's that's right. He goes, um, when I'm in the forest during the during the fruiting season, I feel um, to why for the forest. It's like it's like being at the mother's breast says it's like um, it's like a feeling of security that you know that you're going to be cared for and looked after. And that's why I have to why for the forest. So there you have three very different times that he's used this word or that different people have used the word. And so in a sense, maybe that can it give us a slight insight into what this feeling is. It's like it's a feeling of deep connection. It's a feeling of being held by nature in a way that you're supported and looked after and comfortable and um, yeah, and, and, and a part of it. Um, and yet also it has this sort of sense of nostalgia uh, and this, and it's also not, you know, it, it, it's not like a universal thing because it's not when the forest is destroyed, it's not there anymore. So there is this sense of like a pristineness, a sense of like um, balance and equilibrium with all that is. So it's a mixture of all those things. So you know, <laughs> I've given you about as much as I've managed to figure out myself. So you know, I don't know, what is that word? I mean, it's just a pretty cool word, basically. It's an amazing word. And I think it, I mean, I love this idea that we don't have language to properly even express a lot of these things um, from my own experiences you know a lot of this is sort of sense sensory uh, you know uh, our experiences in these foreign places and remote you know with remote tribes can be more sensory I guess and, and that's perhaps how they um, also experience their relationship with with each other and and with the nature around them what is it about the Penan in particular I know you spent a lot of time with a lot of different tribes but you've got a particular um, love or connection um, with the Penan. What is it about them particularly? You know, David, it was, it was interesting because like, I, I did those series called Tribe for the BBC and I went all over the world, as you said in your introduction, and, and I lived with tribal people everywhere in the deserts and the mountains and the savannas and the oceans and, and all over. And, um, and of course I learned so much from them all and, and there's so much wisdom and, innate knowledge in all of those groups and so it was such a privilege but when i met the panan something definitely did shift in me that was different to any of the other groups and it took me a little while to figure out that what that was because you know when you i think i think if you just went and visited the panan it was the first group of indigenous people you'd ever visited you you wouldn't notice it because they don't look that different i mean they're wearing t-shirts they're smoking that some of them are christianized they're like you know they, they just looked like a lovely group of people living in the forest. But because I'd been to all of these other groups, I became instantly aware that there was something completely different about them. And I've written about this since, actually, and it's really stayed with me. And that what that thing was, was that they didn't have any competition in their society. They truly were equals. They were what we call egalitarian. And, and although I'd read that, and I knew that they didn't have leaders and all the rest of it and didn't have shamans. It was only actually meeting them that I realized how profound this was. And then I discovered um, later that actually 
The Penan are one of a few, very few last remaining groups still living deep in the forests of Africa and Southeast Asia that have this egalitarian trait. And the anthropologists are now um, beginning to realize that actually all of the groups that haven't been affected by the agricultural revolution, the Neolithic revolution, who are still in that part of the world, all, in, all exhibit these same traits. And it's now thought that actually they exhibit these traits because they're continuing on something that was there for all of us before the Neolithic revolution. And that if that is the case, then for 95% of our time on the planet, we all existed in this way. And what that, what that says to you or says to, to me is, wow, that's super interesting because you know, we, all, we all think that this game of hierarchy and competition that we exist in now that is, is always been there. You know, animals are competitive, animals are hierarchical. But, well, humans are too. This is just our natural way. But then you realize, and I could talk about this for the rest of the hour if you wanted to, because I've been off to beat other groups now and I've really dived into this area. But um, it's, it really is a different paradigm, you know, to truly live with a group of people who who don't have hierarchy, who aren't dealing with all the pressures that we have from this sort of stratification of, of value and status within society. They are literally all equal and they work really hard on a daily basis to make sure that they maintain that equality. And, and, the, and, the, and the effect of that in the society is that everyone is just so much more together and connected and they're not having to deal with so many of the problems that we deal with through inequality, you know, they are all seeing each other as exactly the same, or equal, sorry, not the same. And, um, and that's another thing, actually, the, the difference between equality and sameness. We get confused in our society. We think equality means sameness. But actually, they don't see that at all. They, they do see there is a difference between the men and the women. There is a difference between each individual. But those differences, we can celebrate those differences, but they don't mean that you have any more value or status within society. Um, and that is something that's really beautiful. And, and in a way, it's affected my life massively. I've really, it's got me thinking about what's wrong with our, our society and, um, and how we could learn from that. You know, it's a really fascinating subject. Yeah, and I mean, I'm happy to talk, maybe not for the whole hour, but for a good part of it about this, because I think it's, you know, in, in one way, I assume that you're going for your own curiosity um, in, in, in your first instance, but you know, obviously lessons are learnt, uh, lessons are shared, you share it with us, and then I imagine the next step of that is integrating it into you know, both your life, personal life, and perhaps the communities and societies in which you, you, know, in which you live. How did you come to that with the Penan? Like, did they express this to you, this, this egalitarian way of life, or was it through your quiet observation um, that you discovered this? Yeah, I mean, like, I obviously do a fair bit of reading before I go and visit any group, and so I'd heard that they were egalitarian. I heard that they didn't have leaders, and I heard that they were nomadic people flowing through the forest. Um, like I said earlier, it's like it's the, it's all very well reading that on the page, but the experience was was totally different. And and what was really funny was literally from the first moment I met them, I was like, wow, there's something completely different going on here. But I couldn't figure out what it was. It was like their 
everything about who they are and how they're behaving and how they're relating to each other and the forest is totally different to anything else I'd been with before in a very subtle way. And, and so to answer your question, no, uh, they didn't, it wasn't spoken. It was, it was, it, it took ages for me to figure it out. And, and what, because, because it's invisible. It's actually invisible. It's, it's a way of being rather than a way of acting. And, and so it, it took so long for me to discern. Um, and, and ultimately it was that it's like, the, basically there's a part of me that I normally have in any, any given situation. It's like, okay, where am I fitting in this? Where do I fit in this sort of status game and all the rest of it? And it, it's often subliminal. It's not like I'm actively thinking, where do I fit in? But like, it's just an inbuilt part of our societies that we're very, very sensitive to these sort of judgments around status and value. And, and, and we're, and it's just part of our sort of feeler system that we feel out into the world to see where we are because we're, because we, it's sensitive. It's, it is, it's like, it's a big part of how we relate and who we are. But in that environment, it, that bit of me that is normally feeling out for that, which just hadn't had nowhere to go. It didn't have anything to grapple with because I was just, this was a group of people who were all exactly on a par with each other. And, and that was just really disconcerting in a way. But, uh, but ultimately, I, I, I ended up having to come back and do a load of research. Mm. Um, and I remember coming back and going, you know, going back to the BBC and saying, like, there's, there's something really special about this group and I really want to go and investigate and stuff. And they were like, oh, don't be ridiculous. You don't believe in utopia, do you? It's like, you know, it, basically every stage that I've come to in trying to, to sort of, like, pull back and, and sort of, like, and try and share a bit more deeply this other paradigm because it is ultimately another paradigm i mean it, it's almost impossible to discern unless you've actually touched it and been there because it's so at odds with everything that we are and everything that we've learned and and it just seems like a romantic fantasy to imagine that humans could live together without without um inequality or without these value judgments and um and yet what I've learned is that this, you know, that this can't, doesn't just happen in small groups. This can happen across vast swathes of people in huge areas. And I'm like, this is something really interesting. You know, one of the main reasons that we continue our life the way we do is because we've been, we've been led to believe that it's always been like this. Mm. But when you realize that 95% of our time on the planet, we actually lived in a completely different paradigm. And that ever since we've taken on this mantle of aggression and hierarchy and ownership and all this sort of stuff, we've, we've had to deal with all of the problems of society, as well as many blessings, there's no doubt. But so much of what has happened in the last few millennia is as a result of this. And could we reevaluate that through this prism of how we actually evolved to be for so long? And, and yet, whenever I have, in the early days of me having those discussions, most people would just dismiss it as romantic nonsense. And so I've had to do a deep dive into, okay, sure, this is a time gone by for our ancestors. I mean, it's still a time alive today for them, but like for us, it's like, you know, this is like something in a dim and distant past. And it's also uh, was possible 
in an environment that's very different to our own, where everyone has equal access to abundant resources and all this sort of stuff. And, and we've gone on this journey that's taken us out of this space and into this whole different game and this whole different way of being agriculture and, and separation and, and dominion and control and all this sort of stuff. And it's brought us great blessings, but it's also potentially going to bring us to incredible discomfort for vast, vast numbers of people. Is there anything we can learn? And then when you dive into how these groups operate, you realize that it's not just like everyone's zenning out and being sweet with each other. They're, they're constantly working at this. This is like there's tools that they have in their toolkit that maintain this balance. And that's when I suddenly got excited. It's like, ah, if you learn the tools, you can apply them anywhere. It's the tools that are interesting. And it's also the story and the narrative and knowing it's true. You know, narratives are one of the biggest um, unifying factors or forces in, in, in the human cultural toolkit. You know, money is just a story. Religion is just a story. Nationalism is, or nationhood is just a story. But they're very powerful stories that can bring people together, vast numbers who don't know each other, and act under a certain value system. And they had the same. They had the story of no one's more important than anyone else. <laughs> you know? That's a pretty cool story. But we yeah. lost that shit. You know? So if you bring in all these, if you understand the tools, you realize that they could come back. And that's been a bit of a head fuck, to be honest, because like, it's a yeah, it's a bit of a pipe dream, and it's a and and, and most people just like, just sort of like raise their eyebrows and go, carry dream on, Bruce. But I can't let go of it. It's so big for me. Well, I imagine it's not the first time in your life you've heard uh, dream on, Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, <laughs> you know, David. Yeah, right, no, yeah. no, in the sense that you know, like going through your going through your past, it sounds like you're your destiny was to be in the Marines and to be, you know, to be something or someone else. And, and, and I imagine you're looking back on that and, you know, you're on one hell of a wild journey that's still got a, a lot to go. Yeah, there's definitely been some shifts and twists and turns in my evolution, for sure, <laughs> which have been blessings. You know, they've been difficult. Of course, they always are when you look at yourself and question yourself and sort of and decide that actually you need to shed your skin and and. Uh, and move away from that which defined you before it's terrifying yeah but it's always been it's always been worthwhile and 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 st still staying with the penan for a second um two things one is um it's really apparent in the film and i'm going to i'll put a link to the film uh below where where people can check out uh, that film and your website and so forth that um possessions and ownership and sharing is a big part of of what makes them who they are in this egalitarian way of life. But then I'm, and, and you also mentioned the word evolution in your own life, but what is it about, like, why are the Penan still practicing this and you and I are not, and the majority of the world is not? Is it some sort of evolution out of that way of life? Is it about the environment? Is it about the conditions? What, what do you believe? Well, the word evolution is obviously very loaded because we only see that as a positive thing. But, but, but it's not, you know, evolution can go both ways. I mean, some species evolve into something that, that renders them like um, extinct within not very long. So evolution doesn't only go in a positive direction. Um, but taking that aside, uh, yeah, I mean, no one knows exactly what happens. But of course, there are lots of good theories out there um, by academics 
And I think the, the most compelling, and by the way, there's a great book on all this called uh, Civilized to Death, um, which I can't remember the name of the author, Chris Ryan, Christopher Ryan. And it's a really beautiful book that looks into these things. And I really, I really highly, highly recommend it. The audio book especially is very good um, to your listeners. But um, so, yeah, so probably what we have is that, and, and there's a whole nother section to this, which I can talk about later, which is what, how we became egalitarian. That's to me equally as exciting is because like we probably came from hierarchical primates because most of the others are other than Bonobo. And like, so we probably, we quite possibly came from like apex alpha male, aggressive, hireme based sort of societies. And yet here that here we are having groups of people. And now the common belief is that we were egalitarian for, for, for the majority of our time on the planet. So how did we go from that apex power system into egalitarianism? That's something that's fascinating for us to learn about today. And, and there's all sorts that we could talk about later if you want, but, um, uh, which I learned about in Africa with the con with a group of people called the Benjeli in Africa and how they tell about that very moment. They still have a narrative that talks about that very moment. But anyway, that's not your question. Your question is how do we get from egalitarian back to where we are now, which is almost more animal like than the Panan, you know, we've become more primitive primate like than we were before. Um, so anyway, so how did that happen? Well, most people think that that probably happened when we started leaving the tropics and needing to accumulate um, food, mostly provisions to get through a drought or a winter. And the, the accumulation would have been a, an, an, an opportunity for power to have crept in. Whoever had the most food had the most ability to help others and therefore control others and, and on it goes. Alongside that, agriculture, which of course came around 10, 12,000 years ago in various places, and that also would have been a, a, a marked moment in our ancestry where suddenly you have realms of, well, I, actually, I did the work here. I put the seeds in the ground here. Therefore, I'm going to like say this is mine. And that level of ownership and control and, and also the different mindset you have from the manipulation of nature rather than, of course, the nomadic hunter-gatherer wasn't manipulating nature at all. It was much more in his interest that nature was as it was and that he, went, he or she went out and found things. And so you have two different paradigms there between the hunter-gatherer who needs things to be as they are and the farmer like we are who needs to control and manipulate. So that's a shift in the mind. And, and then also this other stuff that may have emerged from, from the accumulation, you know, and let's not forget that accumulation has brought us great benefits too. You know, it's only through accumulation that we've been able to specialize skills and, and all the technologies and industries and there's so many of the wonderful blessings of our world have come as a result of this shift. But with it have also come these shifts in narrative that tell us that we can control nature, which is just clearly a, a deadly fallacy um, that's going to really kick us in the ass if we don't wake up to, because um, we're not bigger than nature and never have been. Um, and that we, you know, that we can own and store, and then it's totally fine for us to have these disparities in wealth. And, you know, and, and that would have come in from the pharaohs on, you know, it's like, you can see the slavery and the subjugation of people 
and the environment that's come about as a result of this. So we're, we have to now discern, okay, we have some great blessings that have come from this, this period of separation and technological advancements and stuff, but we've also got some extraordinary curses that are there and we need to look at all of it in the big picture and we're not, we're looking at it just in our own individualistic, what can I get kind of attitude. And that, you know, unless that shifts um, through a, a, an awareness awakening of some sorts, then we, you know, we, it's not looking good. <laughs> I won't be the first who've said that to you on your podcast. <laughs> well, I, I say it to all my guests myself as well. So we're on the, on the track. Is there one thing in particular that you can give an example of I guess this special relationship between the Penan and their um, their natural world around them. Um, well, if you if you watch the film, you see I go to visit the Penan, and then I also go and visit a group of people called the Piraha in the Amazon, and and then in my private life as well, I've been to visit the Benjeli in in the Congo. Um, and the Piraha aren't exactly egalitarian, but, but they offer us an insight. Into, so the reason I go to visit the Piraha in, in the film is because the Penan have been Christianized. And so they're, they're quite reluctant to talk about their spiritual, their old spiritual ways. And I think that they still have some of their old spiritual ways, but there's this sort of like Christian superstition, if I want to call it that, that has, has crept in that's meant that they weren't able to explore it with me as much as I would have liked to, um, or they were happy to, which, which is of course totally their prerogative. So to answer that question, I mean, I, I like to think that it's in the spirit realm in a sense, it's in this sort of realm of belief that some of the most interesting connections are. Um, and, and so when I went to visit the Piraha, they have they had this sort of like ongoing dialogue with this with nature they called it kahubuge um and it's impossible to pinpoint exactly what this deity or entity or spirit or whatever it is is maybe it's their own subconscious maybe it's something beyond who knows but but this this thing that they had that that was talking to them and i and i went to meet this group because I'd heard that they were having this dialogue with the spirit realm. And it had been slightly poo-pooed by the person who wrote about it, but I was like, my ears pricked up because this group is super interesting because they don't have a future or past tense to their language, so everything's about being present. And, and that one of the main thrusts of the film was that the way that we access this realm is by being very present. You know, it's a meditative state. And hunting and gathering in its own right is a form of meditation. You have to be present to catch the monkey. You have to be present to see where things are growing around you at that time. Um, so they have a daily meditative practice. And the Panan have that, but also the, the Piraha had that. So much so, because they couldn't even think abstract thoughts if they wanted to, because they don't have a language to contextualize things out of the here and now. So I'm like, this is a super interesting group. And they have this running dialogue with this deity. I want to go and ask them where it is that they hear, how do they receive this information? And so I, I met this guy, Tua Bai Chi, and he, and he said, and I had no idea they were going to say this. He said, Kaubage, he speaks to me in my heart, and then it becomes words in my head. And to me, that was fascinating. But to, to finally answer your question, what was so special and interesting about that was what 
Kahubege said. It's not just the fact he's got this running dialogue going on. It's like they're being guided by this dialogue. And he said, without Kahubege, I am nothing. Kahubege directs my life. And then I went out with him into the forest and he's saying things like, Kahubege tells me I shouldn't take, shouldn't take down the big trees. I should only take what I need. I should only, you know, I should only behave in a way that's respectful to everything around me. And I think that the Panan still have that, but they were unwilling to say it as clearly. But that's ultimately what it is. It's like they have a relationship. They're guided. They have, and whether it's just a, a belief system or whether it's truly is something that's beyond that's guiding them, we'll probably never know till our, till the day we die. But um, but that's something that they have that we seem to be missing. It's an empathic feeling, a connection of the well-being of the forest is the well-being of me and my society. It's if I hurt you as a tree, I hurt myself too. And so that is what they all have, I think. It's an understanding that their actions have repercussions that are instantaneously felt back on themselves. Our actions are happening so far away that we don't know the devastation of every time we fill our car with petrol, every time I buy palm oil in the shampoo, every time I buy sugar, or whatever it is, we're having a really, very often, a really quite destructive effect somewhere else. And, and they they are much more in tune with their actions because they see the results of their actions. And, and that mixed with this belief system and this feeling that they have of empathy also wraps up into a way that allows them to live a sustainable life, you know, which we clearly don't have. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, I feel almost a bit silly trying to intellectualize some of this stuff, you know, like you and I having a conversation about something that ultimately even the people that are living in this way probably can't describe. It's a, it's a, it's a feeling, it's a sense, it's a innate connection with, uh, with their environment. I found that fascinating in the, in the film Tawai where um, it's, you know, this sort of uh, method of hunter gatherer and being constantly and consistently moving and hunting and aware and alert and needing your senses and needing to be aware. And, and it almost, I mean, you sort of articulated it in the film, but it, it really struck me that they're almost in a permanent state of meditation, a permanent state of mindfulness. They, they weren't able to, not consciously, but when you're at that moment, you've got to be quiet, you've got to be aware, you've got to know if there are dangers, you've got to, you know, you, your life, your survival depends on, on, on hunting. And, you know, the, the way that we, you know, our monkey mind or, you know, always chattering about what's happened, happened yesterday and what, what may happen tomorrow. Um, is that how you see it? You, you see that they're tapping into something that, that we all can, but that we have either lost the ability to, but there are ways to, to reconnect with that? Yeah, absolutely. And really nicely put, David. It's, um, yeah, I mean, it's a central theme of the film, I guess. And this is why we use the, the wonderful scientist Ian McGilchrist, who talks about the two hemispheres. And, you know, if anyone hasn't seen the film, don't raise your eyes and go, oh, God, the two hemispheres. It's like, you know, this guy is fascinating because it, it was kind of thrown out a long time ago by science. But like he's 
this polymath that's unpacked it and given it a whole new breath of life. And I think um, that he answers a great deal of this. And and yeah, and it, 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 it is available to all of us. But as you said, we are all controlled by the monkey mind, which happens to be the language centers in the left hemisphere. And, and, and that's why perhaps cultures and societies over the eons have created these methods, tools, whether it's drinking ayahuasca or eating mushrooms or doing meditation or singing or dancing or chanting or whatever it is or drumming. These are methodologies for us to get back into the moment, stop that questioning mind and feel something once again. And as you said, the Penan don't need that because they're, 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 they're doing that practice on a daily basis. They have a daily meditative practice. And we're, we're kind of designed to be like that. And when we are like that, that's when our, our mind and our body all sort of equalizes. And it's when everything is functioning as it should, then you don't end up just in this sort of left linear processing mind but actually you come much more connected to your body your senses and the right hemisphere which allows for a wider perspective and sees things in the wisdom of the whole um and i mean there's so much more to be said around that but in in a nutshell that's it it's like if we have a daily meditative practice we can feel more connected and that's what they have and it's what we lost you know, and it doesn't mean to say, because in the film we sort of, we say this is what shifted when we turned to agriculture as well. And it doesn't mean to say that you can't be a fully connected, meditative, empathic, horticulturalist or agriculturalist. And of course there are many. You can be that, but you don't have to be. Whereas you have to be fully present to be hunting and foraging. There's no way out. If you're not present, you're not going to get the monkey. Yeah. And so there is a difference there, and it's possible that over time, as we become more abstracted in our thoughts and we've become more civilized in these states, and we haven't needed to be exercising this, this way of being that keeps us present, that we've shifted into this other way of being, this other way of experiencing and relating to the world that renders, that only adds to the story of separation and dominion. These are, these are well-proven aspects of the left hemisphere that, that we seem to be abiding in today. So I think all of these things together, come together to make this picture and, and it offers us an insight in how to get out of it. It's uh, beautifully put and you've, you've kind of anticipated where I wanted the conversation to go. Um, you know, I've become increasingly interested in the last couple of years with so many things related to, to consciousness, altered states of consciousness. Um, and... I haven't sort of publicly ever spoken about my own experiences in this realm, I guess. Um, and I wanted to do that. And I thought that, you know, you are the perfect person for me to first time publicly, you know, um, touch on these, on these issues and my own sort of experiences with them. I, um, I have had an experience with ayahuasca probably 13 or 14 years ago in the, in the jungle alone in, uh, in Bolivia, which was a, very deep experience for me Um, but I can say that that was not that was sort of a one-off I was traveling it was not part of a a, my journey I guess that was more something to do in the where I was Um, but in the last two years become increasingly interested in in, um, plant medicine 
and psychedelics and the, and the potential um, to, to reach higher states of consciousness and also the, the healing um, potential. So I hope, are you happy to, to take the conversation? Let's go there, mate. Let's go there. Let's yeah. go there. So <laughs> for, for those that are saying, A, a what? Can you sort of just summarize, uh, you know, or give a, a quick overview of ayahuasca, sure. I guess? Well, the, you know, the, there's a number of what we call plant medicines out there and indigenous groups have, have discovered these concoctions um, throughout the world. And, and, and they're all different in some ways and how they, how they act on the mind. Um, but they, they generally have a very similar sort of um, overarching aspect to them. And the ayahuasca itself, I mean, it, 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 I'd be surprised if your audience haven't heard of it because it's pretty well known around the world now. But if you haven't, it's like something that's come from the Amazon. It's a mixture of two different plants. There's a vine um, and then there's a leaf or different leaves. Um, and I mean, you could get, you, I could get all nerdy now, but I won't uh, give it the Latin names and all that stuff. But there's a vine and a leaf. And basically when you mix the two, something magical happens. Um, and, the, and a substance called dimethyltryptamine, DMT, is allowed to enter the body in a way that it wouldn't be able to if you just had that compound on its own. So basically the vine has within it uh, something that inhibits the enzymes that would have metabolized the DMT. Um, so so that's it, it's, it's a mixture, and, and what it does is it, uh, that particular compound DMT is well known to be, I mean, people call it like the, the spirit molecule. It, it, it locks with the serotonin receptor in the brain. It's also actually endogenous. It's found within, we, we actually create this ourselves as well. And people don't, you know, there's it, a huge mystery. Recent, sort of recent studies are just unpacking what exactly this compound is, because it is a naturally occurring compound within us. But uh, when you take a large dose of it, then it interferes somehow with the serotonin receptors and it, and it gives you an incredibly powerful um, experience. And, and so that's ayahuasca. And then there's a number of other compounds like that in different plant medicines to be found around the world, including, you know, magic mushrooms here in my back garden and, and you know, stuff that's everywhere. So, so why would we call them, you know, plant medicines? It's like it, it, nearly all of the pharmaceuticals that we take in our society have come from plants. And yet we call some things illicit drugs and other things like, you know, doctors prescribe beautiful drugs. And like, you know, the whole way we draw our lines around these things is really strange. Um, and, and it's mostly about taxes and control and um, just pharmaceutical industry and culture and a whole bunch of stuff. But so most of our drugs are coming from the plant, plant world, um, aspirin and all the rest of it. Um, and, and yet when it comes to um, drugs for the mind, we steer well clear of them. Um, it's not strictly true, but you know, we don't, we don't, we don't deal with that 
problems of the mind in the same way these tribal people do. They have, farm, they have the whole forest also, which is a pharmacy for them, where they can go and find things that will do the same as us. It's all a pharmacy. We'll stop bleeding, stop headaches, stop childbirth, whatever it is. They have all of the pharmacy, but they also have this, these few that we now call plant medicines, and like the government will call illicit, psychedelic, dangerous, like whatever. Um, but they have these medicines, which they also use for rebalancing the psyche, the mind. And when you have the incredible privilege of spending time with these people and realizing that they are the doctors of their own environment and they understand how the right dose and how to use it and how to hold you when it goes slightly in a, into a potentially uncomfortable situation, that they know what they're doing. And, and when us in the West, who, who, who as we were talking a minute ago, um, were, were saying, you know, we're unbalanced in our heads, you know, and also we're carrying a lot of trauma in our bodies. And they, these, these medicines can help with that. And so when you go with a group of people and they hold your hand and they give you it to you correctly, you can have the most extraordinary healing experience. And, and, in, uh, and I often say there's, there's two or three aspects that you can generally, you can generalize about what might happen if you are lucky enough to be held correctly in one of these healing journeys. And they go as follows. Um, <clears throat> Often what will happen is you will take one of these medicines and, and because it kind of it feels like it, it takes over the mind in a way, it's very powerful and so you slightly lose yourself to a dream world often. And what will happen in that space is that whatever was just beneath the surface of your subconscious mind that often you are not aware of at all, but is there and has been there since for a very often for a very long time, you realize that you revisit a moment that may have caused a deep trauma for you often as a child that is actually influencing your behavior on a daily basis that you're completely unaware of. Because maybe a dog attacked you, or maybe you were, you know, you were assaulted, or, or, or something horrible. We all have our different stories, but these are memories that are stored within us, often within the body, in the stomach and the chest, and the, these are like trapped energy balls of trauma. That if anything comes close to re to reminding us of that in some way, then we have a reaction that stops us going there. But in the hands of these wonderful plant healers, you're in a ceremony where you take this thing and, you, and you're invited to let go and you know it's going to be difficult, but you, but you also believe deep down that it's going to be worthwhile in the long run because you know that you're, maybe you've reached rock bottom <laughs> And you just like, you need, this is the last offered opportunity you have to let go of this, whatever it is that's causing you your addictions or your problems in life or whatever. Because often they can cause all sorts of deep problems. And, and in that dream state, you might revisit that memory of that time 
whereby that trauma occurred to you. And what might happen is that you were able to revisit that with the mind of an older, more compassionate, more loving, more mature, wiser person. And then go, oh my God, it was just that. It was just that. And I was so young, I didn't know that. And it's no surprise that, I, that I've tightened up and, and withdrawn, but actually I now have the ability to let that go. And what might happen is that the sort of the neural pathway that controls the reaction is because of the way that the molecules are going through the neural, you know, the neural pathways. That's what the DMT is doing. Is it allows perhaps for a new pathway to, to grow so that you can not react in this sort of subconscious, unconditional way. Um, and or conditioned way sorry uh, and and act and um and act differently so that's one thing that can happen which as you as you can imagine is incredibly powerful and I, i'm really looking forward to hearing what your experience was dave and another thing is um is that often you will get an experience of connecting to something that just feels well beyond yourself so, you know, the, the, the scientific, the sort of material scientific realm at the moment would suggest that consciousness is just the firings of neurons in your brain and that's it. And, and we're the only ones with it. And like, we're just walking around and it's all happening up here. And then you take something like <laughs> ayahuasca or, or one of these other medicines and you're like, oh, okay, that story doesn't fit. That story seems nonsense. This shit is much bigger than that. And, you know, and, and then you could go into all sorts of extraordinary um, realms. And, 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 and they can be spooky and beautiful and a whole bunch of different stuff. And, and that everyone will have a different, every journey you do will be different. But it's, it's not uncommon for you to have this experience where it feels like um, that uh, you that this sense of consciousness of which we think is just here is actually expanded out into the everything. And, you know, and it can be, and you can actually literally dissolve as a being and just become the universe. And I've had those experiences and many others have too. And, and, and then when you come back from that, you're given an opportunity to go, right. But when you come back from all of these things, it doesn't change you but you have had these profound insights and you can either then just go, Oh, well, that was just taking a drug. It means nothing at all. Stick it in a box and forget about it. Or you can go, that's interesting. That felt real to me. What philosophies of life are there out there that might explain that? And material science doesn't explain it, but there are other ideas and other thoughts and other theories that might explain it. And, and they become super interesting. And the reason that I like some of these other views is because if one absorbs and adopts those other views, you realize that your behavior has, has ramifications, that you're connected to this, this external world. You're not separate. You're part of it. And that actually everything I do, there's a, there's a, there's a, you know, there's a reaction and that I have to limit my behavior in certain ways. It's not just all about me. And so 
these these things offer you um, a window into seeing another way. Another thing that will happen is you you might often come to look at some decisions that you've made or behaviors that you have in life and you see yourself like really who you are um, and you know it and it's very different. I mean, I, I, I haven't met, spent much time on the, on the couch, you know, but like I know friends who have who've done that and then done ayahuasca and they said they were always able to sort of like mentally joust and egoically argue with, the, with their psychotherapist and go, yeah, whatever, I'm not, I'm not buying into that. But when you see it for yourself, it's like, oh shit, this is how I behave. This is who I am. This is, this is how I'm treating my loved ones. This is the sort of life that I'm leading. Then you see it in a way that you can't deny it. There's no like arguing with the with the with the psychotherapist. It's like shit. This is true. This is real. And sometimes these can be incredibly deep realizations that invite you to like change every aspect of your life. Um, and that can be also really disconcerting. And so at the end of these experiences, I've gone on a lot, David, I know, but like at the end of these experiences, you're given a choice. You know, it doesn't change you, but you're like, okay, how do I, I've, I've opened this window into who I am, how I'm behaving and what is possible. What do I want to do with that? You know, and then if you've got enough courage, you can step forth and go, I'm going to change, you know? And so for me, that's a pretty good medicine. <laughs> I'm glad I asked the question. I'm glad you answered it in that open, honest, and as much as you say, everybody out there may know about these things. I, I actually, I, it all depends on the circles we move in and things can, you know, can, you can fit, we can get this sort of uh, incorrect idea, I guess, that everybody knows about something, but I mean, it's, it's, it's becoming it's it's becoming much more i won't say mainstream but it's becoming more talked about absolutely and 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 i wanted to and thank you like honestly that was such a beautiful way i couldn't have asked for anybody to do, to start this discussion for me because i want to take this podcast in the future down these sort of journeys as well so this is a really awesome way to to begin so thank you for for that i mean you've beautifully talked about so many so many things, um, you know, I, I guess just what I'd like to maybe add to that is it can work, I guess, in two ways, like internally in the sense of your own behavior and your own trauma and so forth. But, you know, absolutely what I experienced and what I continue to experience is this um, deep connection to the world around me to to others to nature to i've definitely it's made me more empathetic it's definitely well has it made me more empathetic or it's revealed something to me and then i've worked on that you know i, I feel i'm more empathetic i I'm, I'm i'm trying to be more empathetic um i i feel i'm trying to be less judgmental in in my life um and also it's sort of bringing me closer to, to maybe pure speculation, but you know, these big questions of who we are and what does it mean to be alive and what does it mean to be human and is there a God and where did we come from? And, you know, I don't know. 
I think I'm really happy that I've sort of discovered this relatively late in life, I would say as well, because I don't think that I was mature enough nor equipped as a young lout to, 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 to handle some of this stuff or, or maybe to approach it in a, in a more responsible way. Um, yeah, and, and you know, I've spent a lot of time with, I've, I've traveled a lot in Papua New Guinea, I've, 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 I've been through the Amazon, I've done quite a, a, a lot of travel with indigenous tribes, I'm always sort of by myself and it's really deep experiences, absolutely, uh, yeah, amazing. So thank you for articulating your experiences in that way. How, I guess the question then is, how do you take that experience from the Amazon or wherever you are in that particular plant medicine and how do you integrate it into your life? Thank you, David. And lovely to hear your story as well, mate. Um, uh, yeah, you know, the, 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 the difficulty that we have with this awakening to the plant medicines is that, you know, we can go and live with a group of people and, and be held in this way that's safe and, um, and, look, and be looked after by people who know what they're doing. But of course, we don't live there. And we might only be there for a day or two while we have a ceremony. And then we've got a, this whole unpacked suitcase of our life. We then have to like figure out what on earth to do with that. And sometimes that can be really overwhelming if you've had a really, really difficult realization. Um, and it is one of the criticisms of, of plant medicine is that there is no aftercare. There is no support system for people who have these profound realizations. And it, and so much so that it can actually be really discombobulating for people coming back. And, and while I genuinely believe that it's always good to, to go on this journey and that the blessings are always there, I do think that it is a positive thing. It can, in the short term, be really disruptive for some people. And people should know that. So the integration, as your question asks, is, is, really, is really vital. Um, and finding a group of people that understand this in your home life isn't always necessarily going to be easy. If you think I'd really like to do that, but like if I even told my mates, they'd think I'm crazy and then off you go. That's, that's a really brave act. And I would, uh, I would advise trying to, to, to connect with people who understand this whether on your travels or when you get home or whatever, so that you don't feel you're all alone trying to unpack this. Because it would be very easy to then just be told to stick it all back in the briefcase and do up the lid and forget all about it, because that's the easy option. But actually, we need to keep investigating these things that we've unpacked, and that is the work. You know, like I said, you're, open, you're invited to open the window and look. It doesn't cure you necessarily. It, it invites you to do the work and shows you the direction to go in so yeah the integration and the afterwork is vital you know and it's just a real shame that all of those people in in our societies who um used to know this stuff were were pretty much killed off you know it's like or in in the uk at least or in europe it was uh the um 
you know, they were burnt as witches and, and anyone who had that sort of knowledge were persecuted. And so we've lost it. And, you know, I know that you have an indigenous culture over there that, that would, would understand this much better, but that's not necessarily an easy thing to access. And I, I don't know enough about the, the, the connections out there um, for, for you to go knocking on doors. Um, perhaps if you already have an, a, a relationship, then that might be a place that would um, be able to understand and support if 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 um, if it's a two way two way thing, you know. I mean, but, I uh, so go on. No, I'll just. I mean, the, the the question and and the way I do this podcast really is sort of you know I'm asking the questions on behalf of people that may be listening and and you know, wherever they are in the world, I guess. And, you know, I think it's really important. And what I'm attempting to do is, or what I hope to do with this chat and on, on go is, ongoing is to smash this stigma associated with it. Because when there's a stigma, you then, you know, there's not support because it's classed as illegal. Mm. And it's crazy. And it's not for everyone. I, I, I believe that. And it's hard work. It is absolutely hard work work it's not fun at well it, yeah it can be a real roller coaster but um i think yeah i'm really happy to sort of have this chat with you and to uh to hear your experiences of uh of it and for you is it, it this sort of plant medicine is it very closely related to meditation and mindfulness and 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 sort of is is do you see it as something different or do you see it as as sam harris the the i assume maybe you know sam the neuroscientist would say that psychedelics are a shortcut to meditation uh, to reach higher levels of consciousness and and maybe shortcuts aren't too bad um do you see them in the same family or something different i, I definitely see them in the same family and i also think that like you know a vipassana retreat is it works very well with different psychedelic um um, journeys along the way and, and different forms of meditation. Yeah, I think, like I said earlier, I think they're all tools that we've found over the years to help us reconnect. Um, and that alongside yoga and chanting and, and, you know, drumming and a whole bunch of other stuff that if you do in a certain way can bring about um, a deeper sense of connection in whatever way that is. I think that psychedelics are curious in the, as you say, they're like a shortcut. I mean, I often describe them more like a wet fish around the face. It's like, you know, it's like, it's a, it's a slap and it can be pretty messy. Um, I think that, I think that these things are good mixed. You know, I think that I, I have friends who've just been on a meditative path as perhaps with a particular doctrine in their mind that has been, you know, it's been a long, long, long journey. And then what one session of ayahuasca has like given them a massive head sort of like leapfrog in their work because it's broken them through something that's enabled them to go further. So, yeah, I think that there's so many ways that we can have these experiences and that it's really, it's really important that the, to my mind, that the narrative that we surround these things by is also wholesome. Because, you know, as you said, it, as you asked, is like, you know, how similar is the ayahuasca to the meditation and all the rest of it? In, in some ways, they're very similar in that you have this opportunity to access something, you have this opportunity to connect 
to something. But what happens after that is we have to then contextualize that into our life somehow. And what you often find is that the purveyor of the medicine or the, or the, or the ritual or the tool has his own or her own version of what's going on. And that will be the thing that you go, wow, okay, cool. That makes sense. And we have to be really careful here because, um, you know, one thing is for sure, and you see this with gurus and cult leaders and shamans and all sorts, it's like when you are in that experience, if you are having a, 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 a life-changing moment that's allowing you to heal and access a part of yourself that you've never accessed before and experience something that's so profound, you know, it's, it's very overwhelming. And it is also very possible that you can then... Uh, just listen with awe to whoever it was that has all this wisdom and knowledge that brought you this, this thing. And, and I just urge your listeners to be wary of the person who brought it to take much more care of what your own experience was and not what you, what you are told how to contextualize it. Um, and so there is a, there is a difference, you know, between what a shaman might say, and what a Buddhist guru or, or, or monk or leader might say, and, and also what a Christian person might say, and all the rest of it. And so we all have our different narratives for this. And I personally like the, 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 the narratives that come from our indigenous folk, because they have this sort of relationship with nature, relationship with the ancestors. That feels to me a context that I like. Um, and for a long time, I was also very sort of excited and enthralled with some of the teachings that came from the East, but they're not the same. They will try and contextualize this experience in a way that fits, but they're not the same. And so we have the choice of what we want to believe as far as what these experiences are. Um, they, 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 they all have good intention, I believe, unless you've got some particular individual who is really trying to manipulate. And you have, we have to be very careful because these are powerful things. Um, and, and our culture, as we said earlier, doesn't support that. We're having to look elsewhere for the context. And that means that we're having, you know, we can get caught up in the stories that go around that. So, yeah, I've moved away a little bit myself in, in some of the things that might come alongside the meditative versions of the story. And I've definitely shifted more towards uh, a more indigenous narrative. Because for me, it fits with the times. It fits with my experience. It fits with how I want to relate to nature, which isn't necessarily so embedded in those other teachings, which perhaps might be more about leaving this place or something similar, you know, as I'm more about being here and creating a world for the future generations and that sort of stuff. And that means taking care of nature. So, you know, th th this is, th this is a subtle difference. I mean, you asked me what were the differences? Were they the same? Were they different? I think there are differences. Um, and uh, so, you know, just be careful. Yeah. 
Thank you so much. I'm conscious of time. I know uh, you got things to do. Um, if you don't mind, I might just ask you. It would be it would be irresponsible of me not to. What is the main lesson that you've taken from all of these journeys, or all of the? And I'm not talking about psychedelics. I'm I'm just talking about the time spent with indigenous tribes, with peoples, with your experiences. Um, sort of what have you taken away as the as, as a core value? What should we take away as a way, you know, from for the future? That what can we learn? What are the lessons learnt, and how do we apply? I know it's not an, an, an easy final question. I apologise for that. Yeah. And are you? No, what are you doing in your life to to with this knowledge of this more egalitarian way of of life? Sure. Well, I think the biggest thing I've learnt is that actually we as a species, humankind, are very malleable and very pliable, but we have the capacity to be amazing. We have the capacity to create societies that are incredibly loving and harmonious. And that isn't just romantic nonsense, it's a reality. We are capable of working together in vast numbers in a really harmonious way with each other and with the environment that holds us. We, that is possible, you know, and, and, and but beneath our layers of conditioning of which we all have so many from our school, from our parents, from our society, which might not tell us that we're amazing. <laughs> it might tell us something quite different, but if we, if we can, shift our belief to truly understand that beneath these layers of conditioning is something really beautiful and really pure and that we really are each of us capable of living extraordinarily beautiful lives then that might inspire people to go on that journey of looking inside and going on that healing journey because if if you don't believe that it's worth going there because you're only going to find something shitty at the bottom you're not going to go looking but if you can genuinely believe that we're capable of something and that we all have that, and actually I'm not a bad person, I'm just wounded and I can find something beautiful, then we have a chance together of doing the healing that's required that we can feel more deeply and connect once again to each other and this beautiful planet. And that's it, you know, and once we are going on that journey and taking on that new belief, then then we will find the empathy, we will find the connection that will allow us to create these new societies and an egalitarian society or whatever it is that emerges from that place. We'll realize that we are better off together. We're better off as equals. We're better off looking after each other, bringing people up when they're down and, not, and sort of like teasing people to bring them down when they're getting ahead of themselves and taking care of this planet. And, and we, we've done that successfully for 95% of our time here. And we've gone a little bit off piste, but we can do it again if we want it. So that's that's my learning from my travels. Amazing, thank you, you're amazing. It's been a brilliant opportunity to have the chat. Um, again, I'll put links to, to your website and to that film, and I really recommend everyone go out and, 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 and watch as much as they can about this. And hopefully we get the chance when the borders open and all that sort of stuff to, to meet in person. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? You're a champion. All right, mate. Thanks, Bruce. Have a good day. See you, brother. Cheers, pal. And you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.
Many thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, review it with five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen and subscribe to make sure you don't miss an episode. And go to aliminalspace.earth to access all episodes available as both video and audio podcasts. But for now, many thanks again and see you next time in Aliminal Space. Thank you.